Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. I have a burning question. Got to start with a burning question this week. A burning question. I I know this is hard for you. Take a deep breath. I'm going to ask the question, and it's an either or. You're not allowed to, like, give me all these caveats about whatever, whatever. You know, for someone who spends so much time talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, (laughs) you're often really black or white. I know. Well, here we go, right? So I saw this online, and I thought it was an interesting question, so I thought I'd put it forth to the brilliant O'Toole. So here's here's the thing. You have two choices. Ready? I'm already failing under high expectations. <laughs> I know. You're anxious already, right? <laughs> I am. I am. Keep every movie that has ever been made up until today, but then you can never see any new ones coming ever again, or you incinerate all existing films and can only watch movies made after today. What's your choice? That's actually easy for me to I choose. Know. Can, I, can I guess? Yep. You're going to go with keep the old ones, right? No. Really? I'd rather see something new. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I'm so because happy to hear that. The, yeah. The old ones that I've seen and I've loved, I, I feel like they're etched in my memory. It's the same way I don't buy books. Once I read a book, I usually just know that my time is limited and I'd rather read something new. Huh. I'd rather go to a I new vacation place. I just know that you, you, know, you admire the, the films of old and that you feel they're really well made sometimes the films today don't measure up to the brilliance of the films of old. So I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure which way you're going to go. I'm all about new. But now, Hollister, if you were faced with burning your West Wing DVD set... Uh, you know, I Aaron Sorkin would probably die without me. So I would have to say <laughs> I would stick with what I know. Wow. But then you never see what new creations are on the horizon. Yeah, well, you can tell me about them. How's that? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Okay, moving right on. But I thought it was a good burning question. Would love to hear from our listeners, too, you know? We had a nice response from our evil women villains from last week. (laughs) And did you see there was like a number of people came up with the same movie that we missed. So I thought I should mention it here. Do Do you remember? Did you pick that up also? It wasn't Kathy Bates in Misery? It was, yeah. I mentioned it in passing. I figured you were going to add it to the list when we doubled on Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction. Yeah, yeah. I I had thought about it, but I never saw the movie. I just had read a lot about it. So have you seen it? I have not read the book, nor have I seen the movie. Yeah, so I guess we 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 do have a good reason why we didn't pick it. (laughs) But it's certainly a movie that I've heard about so often that I can totally understand. But I thought this was an interesting little... Side note, ready? So Misery was almost turned into a Broadway play with Julia Roberts as Annie Wilkes. Really? Okay, now, and I'm like, really? Seriously? Okay, but King vetoed the idea because Annie, in his words, is a brawny woman who can sling a guy around, not a pixie. Um, I, I don't know if it hurt her feelings or not, um, but Julia Roberts never, I don't think, has a quote about her response to him. But anyway, I just thought that was sort of fun. Interesting. And then also we heard from Diane from North Carolina about The Big Sick, and she said that it was nice to see an Apatow film that wasn't full of bathroom humor and tacky sexual innuendos. I thought that was a great phrase. I agree. Which leaves me to the last thing of I'm extremely anxious Okay. Why? We don't watch Game of Thrones. No. Okay. Here's the thing. I mean, I don't have that many friends, but every single friend that I have, I mean, I swim every day with this, um, this couple and they couldn't wait for the big opening last night. And I was in New York last week and in the Hamptons and everybody was talking about, oh, Game of Thrones. And I was like, so then I said to, to the people in the pool when we were taking a little break in between laps. I said, well, if I pick it up this season, can I do that? And they said, oh, no, you'd have to go back to the beginning. And I thought, I'm not watching seven seasons, but why have we never even talked about this? Well, it's really not my genre. I mean, let alone some of the themes with incest and this and that, but their production budget, it is a huge franchise. Well, it's funny because the woman with white hair who was in that movie, what's her name? Me Before You. Of course, you know exactly what I'm talking about, even though no one would have any reason to think you would. Yes. And what is her name? Amelia Clark. Okay. I have seen, I saw a couple of episodes of the first season. 
I think she's mesmerizing as this white-haired, amazingly strong woman. And I love her dragons. Everybody should have a pet dragon, don't you think? <laughs> Remember in our podcast about me before you, when Jojo Moyes, who wrote the book and the screenplay, was first approached, and they said, yeah, we found <laughs> Amelia. It's Amelia Clark. Oh, she's like yeah. the white-haired lady from Game of Thrones. <laughs> she couldn't see it, and yet she was well, great in me before yeah, you. Yeah, she was great in both. both. I, just, I just don't know why I never did it, you know? But I'm now beginning to wonder if I've made a mistake. And But I don't have time to go back to season one. I'm sorry. Do not have time. And the problem I had with season one is they all look the same to me. So with the exception of her, I couldn't figure out who the characters were because they all dressed alike. They all had these big burly beards. And it was sort of like, wait, didn't I just see you in the last scene? And I just couldn't keep them straight. It does seem like a very hirsute genre. The same mm-hmm. way I can't go to Middle World or do The Hobbit or any of those other big yeah, yeah, fantasy movies. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're, you and I, just you and me, girlfriend, that's all we have. We, we, there's nobody else who, who feels the way we do about it. But a lot of people who I know love it, love, love, love it. So. See, it's okay, because I'm just going to go off into the future. Right. So, so you came up with an interesting opening for us to watch this week, and I'm so glad you did. So you want to intro? Yeah, my sister sent me a really interesting article about this new show called The Bold Type on Freeform, formerly ABC Family. <laughs> the show is a far cry from what they would have put on ABC Family, but Freeform... Yeah owned by Disney, targets millennials. So this show is about three 20-something friends who work at a magazine called Scarlet. Which is supposed to be Cosmopolitan, which i that's the only thing that didn't connect for me because the magazine doesn't seem at all like Cosmopolitan to me. But I'll tell you why I thought this could be really interesting. In the article, they were talking about creator Sarah Watson, who's a huge fan of Sex and the City and Devil Wears Prada. I was just going to say Devil Wears Prada meets Sex and the City meets Younger, you know? Exactly. But she wanted a show with a female boss who was actually a positive mentor. And so she created the editor, played by Melora Hardin in this. And I think that role adds a lot to this show, that she's tough. I love this female boss who's tough, 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 tough. Mm -hmm. But really with, an, you know, there's one point they come in and her assistant said, Beyonce's on the phone. (laughs) And then she sort of looks at him because she's in this... earnest conversation with one of her writers mm-hmm. and he says Knowles <laughs> and she says I'll call her back because because she was in the moment with the person she was working with and she wasn't I loved that moment I thought it was great I have Beyonce on the line for you uh, Beyonce Knowles Yes, I figured you meant that, Beyonce. She definitely gives some good advice and attention, but has high standards. And I loved the scene where Kat, one of the 320-somethings, was about to tweet out as just a knee-jerk reaction. Everyone, listen up. We are all going to tweet that a woman is being held against her will. And her immediate supervisor said, do not send that tweet. And you see her hit send. And, you know, not to give anything away, but what the editor you know, the one inspired by Joanna Coles from Cosmopolitan, what she says in that scene about, you know, it's courageous that you didn't send the tweet we all thought you did, but that won't always be the right thing to do. I thought that was super interesting because it, it yeah. there's this recurring theme of courage, hence the title. I was like, what is Hollister going to think about the title and well, the play you know on words? The title. It's like, just why don't you just call it the magazine? You just call it the magazine or magazine. You can even take the the off it. But anyway, the other thing See, that she I said... See, I love the title because I love the play on word where it's the bold type, like you want a courageous character in terms of the people and the people yeah. they're becoming. But yeah. also it's a font and they're all about the magazine and the, the printed word. Look, when I see a Hershey's chocolate bar on the counter, I don't want to have to decipher what's inside from the name. See, Just I, say chocolate bar. To me, no, no, it's, no, it's a chocolate bar. I, you know, like if the bold types and the, the, there's this sort of double entendre, it's like, I don't want to know that in the title. I just want you to tell me the title, what it's about. See, to me, it's not opaque. It's more like a prism. Like you can look well, at it this way or no, you can look I mean, at it def- that way I mean, it's and they both clever, land. Clever, clever, clever. Yeah, but sometimes mm-hmm. clever is just clever, not necessarily. Okay. So Sarah Watson said that the reason she did it, she said women's magazines have this incredible platform right now and I think women readers are incredibly hungry for it. Now, there's two words of the same incredible in one <laughs> sentence. I'm not, you know, I, I just want to say that. Okay. Joanna Coles would not be happy. That's definitely something we wanted to explore. We always joke that the tagline of the show should be 
searching for the right shade of lip gloss to wear while smashing the patriarchy. I love that. Huh. So she's saying, after all, she adds, I want to smash the patriarchy, but I also want an awesome fitting pair of jeans. And here's where it got interesting for me. So the the opening scene takes place in a boardroom where there's, I don't know, 25 white men over the age of 50 and four or five women. And they're talking about what's going to be editorial in this women's magazine. But what's also interesting is when you walk in, there's a big sign in the back that says Steinem, which is, of course, you know, Gloria Steinem. And then they're sitting in this room and there's a quote behind it from uh, from another feminist from the 70s. So it's almost like she's taking, we haven't gone far at all, but then the women speak up in the meeting and get what they want. The men are sort of sitting there like sitting duck stupids and... So it, I, I think the complexity of how she layers in all these messages, whether it's what's on the wall or even the color of the wall or anything else, it's really, really interesting. Well, you know me. I kind of feel like I know it's based on Cosmo, but I do feel like they conflate sex with feminism. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that was a very interesting plot point that one of the 20-somethings confesses that she's never really known sexual fulfillment. And she said, you know, 10% of women are like to this. Say she's never had an orgasm. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, you know, but see, this is what I mean. And yet it led to a very interesting discussion because when she goes in to talk to this editor who seems to have all the time in the world for these 20-somethings and their little crises where she says you know nowadays women are supposed to be so sexually liberated and working at this magazine I'm feeling even more pressure I thought that was a really interesting plot twist Hmm. yeah because honestly I sort of thought that was I don't know I thought it was over the top I uh, you know, I just, and then they, she goes to see a, a, a sexual, somebody who's going to help her sexually and she takes her, her BF, one of her BFFs with her. I just thought that that stuff was a little bit, I guess, childishly over the top. If you, if I don't know how else but to say it. If that statistic like that. is right, that it applies to 10% of women, yeah. you know, because here's another example. When the editor is giving that office wide speech, so everybody's gathered around her, uh-huh. I thought, you know, I do find her an inspiring character and I think she really is a good role model. I expect you to unleash holy hell on anyone who tries to hold you back. But then when she tells them all to go out and have sex with the wrong people, I thought, you know what, I'm really glad that of all the jobs I've ever had, I've never had an office get together where that's what my boss really wanted me to go do, (laughs) as opposed to write an interesting article, research something fascinating. And, you know, that's one thing I was thinking about it, the movie Wonder Woman, I really enjoyed it. And yes, Wonder Woman is beautiful. And yes, she runs around in that red, white, and blue bathing suit equivalent. But it wasn't a sexualized portrayal of Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. And yet she was powerful. And I wouldn't mind a little bit more of that. But I know it's based on Cosmopolitan. Well, the other thing that she said was really important for her to portray in this is that women friendships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the millennials, we've talked about this before. They are good friends. They know how, you know, they travel in clumps. And what's funny about millennials are they don't have one best friend. They often have two, three, four. They, you know, it's a clump of them that are all together. Mm-hmm. And I love the camaraderie. It reminded me of um, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. You know, it's just a really interesting combination of people who are very different, but their common interest is supporting and elevating each other. And they really want the best for each other, and there isn't jealousy there, and it's really wonderful. And so I, I think her portrayal of friendships of women are, is something that I love to see mirrored for the young people to be watching today. Well, you know, it's that portrayal of friendship that is why I always give these Sex in the City vehicles a chance. Yep. You know, it's the fun cinematography, the fashion, but yep. you're right, it's the friendships. And, yep. you know, it was similar in Lipstick Jungle and another show you already mentioned, Younger. Also very similar in terms of that dynamic. Well, here's what she said. She said, that was hugely important to me. On a scale of 1 to 10, that was an 11 because I wanted to see the kind of female friendships that I have. I wanted to see the kind of female bosses that I've been lucky to have. In my experience, women do help each other, at least the ones in my life. I feel like that's not what we often portray, i.e. girls with Lena Dunham, who doesn't portray women that way. 
I feel that this is the time we need to see those figures and those role models on television. Showing the positivity of female friendships was incredibly important to me. I love that it was important to her because I think it enriched me just to see it. And that's why I found it intriguing from the very first scene where they Mm -hmm. hold hands in that subway tunnel and just scream at the train and then they cut to earlier. I'm like, that's really interesting because you're like, why are they screaming? And yet you already know these are three friends through thick and thin. This was originally pitched to NBC. Who picked it up and then dropped it. Weird. Do you know what's really interesting is when it was in the hands of NBC, the plot focused on a man. It was supposed to be a fish-out-of-water story about a former Wall Street Journal reporter who could, quote-unquote, only find work at Scarlet, you know. As if there's not a line of people, again, who would like to work at Cosmopolitan. But when Freeform picked it up, they shifted the focus to women Hmm. and these friendships, which I think is the saving grace of this show. Well, the other thing it made me do, it's really funny, is um, I'm going to buy a Cosmopolitan magazine because I haven't looked at Cosmo in maybe 20 years because I think it's sort of for old people and not today. And I, I just haven't thought about it. I just never thought... But she says she's mirrored Scarlet after Cosmopolitan. So I'm going to take another look at it. So probably be interesting to see if Cosmo serves, if it, you know, if it has a little blip upswing because of it. I'm a feminist. And so is this magazine. It's about clothes and makeup. That's actually a common misconception. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is I don't think these actors, you know, they certainly aren't sex in the city. You know what I mean? I, I don't think they have... I don't think they're special. Now, maybe that's okay, but they weren't standouts to me. The most standout person was the female photographer um, who did that incredible uh, photography show about Muslim women in in hijabs um, with holding up signs with, you know, a word that they wanted people to know they stood for, which, by the way, was a real show Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. I saw it. Yep. And I think there have been spinoffs on that concept, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. But something else that the show covers, which I find interesting, is what's called the self-insert nature of journalism. That's true, yeah. Where where she puts herself in the story she's writing, which used to be a no-no, but it's not anymore. And just having that byline mm-hmm. and not writing anonymously. But Hollister, let me ask you about this. When Sutton is interested in getting a different job that would pay more, even though fashion is her love. And she's talking to the guy that she's having the affair with. How can you not tell us that you're having sex with Richard Hunter? Okay, who's supposed to be older, <laughs> I realized. I can't even tell the age difference between these characters I mean, anymore. He's, he, he's, he's a little bit older. He's not supposed to be way more older. He's supposed to be on the board of directors, highly successful, which could be a younger guy. That's no longer well, I've, just older people. And I've, that's why he's taboo. It's not because he's older. I like that they made him not much older, but very successful and way far further ahead than the if three he's women. not supposed to be much older, when they're doing that little mock interview and he says, Uh well, why are you interested in this job? You know, like, why did you take this one? And she said, well, you know, are you asking when I graduated at a time that was the worst job market in a million years, thanks to your generation? And he goes, Mm -hmm. yep, point well taken. And then I thought, well, what did his generation do that was supposed to have created all this economic havoc? I I don't know. I didn't hear it that way. I I just heard it as that when she was getting out of college, which was, let's say, it could have been five years after him, uh, you know, or ten, you know, six. I mean, that's not a lot older. Um, you know, it, the market was just not there. And yet he doesn't know Snapchat. Like, they have a lot of back and forth about almost like younger, you know, where he's not hip to this new technology. Yeah, that's what, why I, I said it's a combination of the three of them. But, um, but I don't think that the, all the women, you know, are... Let's put it this way. They're not stars. And maybe that's a good thing because it's more of an ensemble cast anyway. And it seemed as if in the two episodes of the beginning, the three of them were getting pretty much equal play on the screen. So maybe one of them is not going to be in the forefront standing out. Maybe it is going to be all three of them, you know? Well, when you look at the first couple episodes of Sex and the City... It was Mm -hmm. not yet focused on just those four women. Yeah. You know, it was supposed to be these one-off storylines, and their characters really grew and changed over the years. I I think this has legs, and I think it could go for quite a while. Are you sure you want to do that right now? Yes. Gosh, worst pep talk ever. 
I of course found out after I purchased it that it's on Hulu. And where did you watch it? You watched oh, it somewhere else. I watched else. it for free. I just downloaded the Freeform app. All right, so then we move to the next generation around friends from college. What's going on with you? I think I'm just anxious, you know, to see everybody. What? With our friends? Last week, we were adults before we moved here. Turned 19 again. It's a reunion! The friend group is back! I was so wondering what you were going to think about this. And for me, it was interesting because it's six friends who went to Harvard. I don't think Harvard was such a big plane. I mean, it could have been any college, really. Well, I was wondering what you thought about that because there were a lot of references to Harvard. And not not in a way that would keep you from watching the show, but when they're talking about moral reasoning class and you were always so Kantian and I was more of a moral relativist. Or they don't say, oh, your dorm. They say Duster House. Yeah, I felt like there were two or three references to that. But generally, it was really about a strong clump of competitive kids at a competitive university. And then they kept the competition going, you know, afterward. But the problem is, I don't know who these people are individually. I only know how they are collectively with each other. And so if I can learn in the big chill about each of these eight characters and who they are and what they're feeling personally alone, etc., then how come in eight episodes I can't figure out who these characters are individually? See, I felt like I did know these characters, and maybe it's my own Harvard experience bleeding into watching this, because it reminded me very much of a novel that I really enjoyed called The Red Book, written by a woman, Deborah Kopakin-Kogan, who went to Harvard, and she wrote about a group of Harvard friends at their 20th reunion. And they called that book the big chill for the Facebook generation, which is why it's so interesting to me that you're comparing this to the big chill, because it's that blend of nostalgia and complexities, and it made me think of your favorite line from Something's Gotta Give. I can't decide if you hate me or if you're like the only person who ever really got me. I don't hate you. It's that dynamic that I found really interesting. So I had to look up the creators. It's Francesca Del Banco and Nick Stoller. Nick Stoller, you might know, he directed Forgetting Sarah Marshall. He wrote The Muppets. He's often collaborating with Jason Siegel. But the creators, they're a real-life husband and wife team who both went to Harvard. They didn't meet there, but three of their Harvard friends helped write the show. So five of the seven writers went to Harvard. And this is what Francesca said about it. We were interested in how friendship can be trapped in the era in which they're formed. We have different relationships with our friends who we met while we were teenagers than people we've met, say, as parents of our children's friends. We were interested in the way that people in their 40s comport themselves in the world versus with their old friends from college. You kind of regress to all of your old habits for better or worse. And what I found really interesting in the show was seeing their dynamics through the eyes of their significant others. Well, in my experience, with the exception of you, my dear friend, with Harvard people, is number one, within the first five minutes of meeting someone from Harvard, somehow it comes up that they went to Harvard, and it might have been the pinnacle of their life. But... And they sort of seem to think that their Harvard experience is very different than any other college experience anybody ever went to. And the truth is, when you get together with college friends, I mean, we, I have a reunion with my college, um, the A Debated Pie Club, because we used to, the four of us used to get together (laughs) and divide a pie by four and eat. (laughs) You know, it was sort of like our, our <laughs> pretending, you know, our Greek Greek club. When we get together, we have this, it's the same thing. Like, I don't, it's only Harvard people who think their experience is unique to them. But I, I mean, I've seen, you know, I went to the University of Nebraska where football is king. But when Nebraska is doing really well and there's a football game, everybody reverts back to that time. It's not Harvard unique. Do you know what I mean? Well, I don't think the creators were saying that. And I'm certainly not saying that. But to me, I thought these six characters, whereas you didn't really feel like you knew who they were, they felt very real and very authentic to me. And so, for example, Keegan-Michael Key, who we talked about in our podcast about Don't Think Twice, he brings in all his improv background into this show. We've got like 20 years of grievances built up. It all just gets so competitive. And I think this is very interesting that he's having an affair, and that's a completely different dynamic than how he is as a spouse, where you think, okay, in smaller doses, he's interesting, yet you see him in a different light, and he's neurotic and not very appealing. Okay, so, but here's the thing. So the woman he's having an affair with, Mm -hmm. she's a mother of two. 
I have no idea really how she mothers. There's one scene where you see her on the bed with her two kids. But other than that, she, we have no idea what kind of mother she is. She's supposed to be, I think, an interior decorator because it's mentioned once. But you never, ever find out what her... Is that a passion? Does she love doing it? We don't know anything about her other than her relationship with the guy she's having an affair with. And it's sort of... I don't know, a a shallow viewing of her relationship with her husband. In other words, I don't know what she thinks outside of the fact that she likes to sleep with this guy. You know, we don't know who she is as a human being. And it's true with pretty much all the characters. Like we have a lawyer who takes a job at a terrible firm. These guys are infantilely ridiculous and absolutely awful. But we have no idea why did she become a lawyer. I don't even know where she went to law school. I don't know anything about her other than the fact that she wants to have a baby with her husband who's having an affair with what is supposed to be her friend. So we don't really have any idea how these people came to be who they are or what they think now about other things outside of each other. And when you can't do that, it's very, very hard to to really get myself attached to them individually or find a mirror of myself or a window into that which I aspire to be because I have no See, idea who I they f- are. I feel like I do know these characters. I think they're extremely well cast. And Annie Paris, who you mentioned, who played the ADA on Law & Order, I think she's my favorite character. And yet the dynamic makes it really interesting. We are such bad people. Such bad people. What kind of mother is she? Well, see, this is why, you know, I watched all eight episodes. I kept getting sucked in because all of a sudden I realized, oh, she's the stepmother. That wasn't clear to me, which is She's good. She's the stepmother of one of the kids. The other two are her own. It's not mentioned right out of the shoot. So to me, I feel like I'm watching something on rewind and fast forward because of this blending of their memories of each other from when they were 19 and how they are now. I don't even think they flash back enough. They don't. I mean, I don't really understand what happened during... I don't, I don't think it was well built. I think it was... it was not built brick by brick. It just had a ton of action shots and a ton of interaction in stressful situations, but that's all it had. You know, people See, throw. You know, how many times can you throw a chair through a window in a ser- in an eight part series? Three times they broke windows by throwing things through them. That doesn't make any sense. I want everyone to know that after a long talk with Max last night, I have decided to go ahead and try to like you. But I got to tell you, I thought it really built to a crescendo. So by the time I saw the eighth episode, the last, to me, it felt like watching a play where it peaks at the right moment. It felt like watching improv. It felt to me like being back in college. Mm -hmm. You know, so the other characters, Fred Savage from The Wonder Years, who plays Max, Jaysu Park, who plays Marianne, her character to me was super interesting. Tell me about her. Tell me what you know about her as a human being. Okay, I know that she's really into theater. She writes her own plays. She likes doing gender-reversed plays. I know she likes pets. She likes her rabbit. She's dating the guy from Uh Australia. She never Mm -hmm. wanted to get married. You know, she's the one who is the only one in the friends group who knows about the affair. And she's totally against it. She's the one that has a moral core, and yet she's the one who thinks it's fine no, to teach kids of how all to the drive. Characters, you picked the right one to talk about because probably you'd, I did know her best. But the others, it's just a frenetic... Every, every episode was a frenetic explosion of emotion and action around two of the characters or more. And... And like the, there's one where they all go to t- do wine tasting on Long mm-hmm. Island. And, and I thought to myself, this is the most boring episode I think I've ever watched. There was nothing, there, it didn't bring the plot further along in any way, shape or form. Oh, to me, I thought there were some laugh out loud moments. I thought there was a lot of humor in the show. But so when I- did it advance the story? When I first started watching, I thought, okay, they start with a salacious scene. I suppose because they have to sell they their TV show. They do that on every show. single episode, by the way. Well, you know, partly- I think it's because what they think audiences want, and partly because agents who pick up shows, they'll usually only watch the four minutes of something. Well, you know so, what? That's not a good reason to start an yet, episode that way. 
people do it all the time and it yeah, got maybe, picked well, up. Yeah, but I, I, it was just... But that's why my point being that when I stuck with the show, I thought, oh, this is actually mining a lot of humor and has good timing, which I wouldn't have necessarily expected from well, that very first episode. Well, if you're for comedy, then we can call it, but I don't see how it advances the plot. Let me give you some more examples. Okay. For example, the eighth episode, I thought was just comically brilliant when Greg German's character hires the mentalist as a surprise. And he's supposed to unearth people's secrets. And you realize by the time you get to the eighth episode that they've all got secrets. I thought that was done really well in that same episode when Marianne sees her bunny and she looks at them and says, I'm going to put my bunny in your bedroom and she's going to eat all your shoes. There were lines like this that I thought were very funny. Watching Annie Paris at The Therapist... I love my life. I just wonder what would happen if it was blown to smithereens and I got to start all over again. I thought those scenes were great. And when the therapist looks at her oddly and starts writing on her notepad and Annie Priest looks at her and says, I hope you're writing down the word breakthrough. And the therapist says, I am not. There were some moments I really enjoyed. See, and I think those are entertaining moments perhaps. But for example, he didn't, the mentalist didn't on, on, unearth anything we didn't already know. So there was not one surprise in any of what he showed us. So it didn't move the plot along. Where's the punch on that? So the fact that he did it in some entertaining way or the rabbit was back, you know, in the backyard was entertaining. But again, it's not taking us further into who these people are and where they're going to go. To me, I thought it was done really well because they're all harboring these secrets. And the characters are in the dark on some of the secrets. So for example, the spouses don't know that these two have been cheating for 20 years and feel as though they've been grandfathered in because they were each other's first great loves. And so you don't know is this going to be revealed in front of this just scat of people at her 40th birthday party? How are they going to find out this information that we're privy to that they're not? And we have superior information as the audience. The other thing is like, okay, so in that episode, for example, the car gets rolls itself into the pool. That's what I mean by there was this constant sense through the whole thing of these explosive action, action. I kept hearing them say action and we saw this action, but again, it didn't move anything forward. What was the point of the car going into the pool? What's the point? You needed something to put a break on this. Is the information going to be revealed and they're all going to find out who's doing what, when the same way that they did it when the lawyer is coming back with those horrible coworkers from the Cayman Islands. Job. They're evil. And she calls her husband from the plane and says, we need to talk. And he's like, oh boy, nothing good has ever come from being told by your spouse that we need to talk. She goes, the minute I land, we'll talk. And then of course, there's turbulence, the plane is delayed. So I felt like those moments delayed the payoff of the comic situation. Right. And I think they delayed it too much. You know, I, in other words, the payoff for eight episodes, the payoff I thought was minimal at the very end. But now, are you going to watch season two? Do you think it'll be renewed? If there's a season two, I'll definitely watch. I really liked the cast. And I really liked what they said about these dynamics where some now have a lot of money, some don't have money, and they're sleeping on friends' couches. Some have kids, some don't have kids, some want kids and can't have Um, kids. Yeah, the money thing, it's sort of like, it was, again, this series of explosive opposites. They have no money, so they have to live with their friend. Okay, She's just taken a job as in-house counsel at Blackstone. She, they would be able to have money to get an apartment. Well, that's probably why she took the job. Well, and either way, just spent- you know, you're talking about somebody who's going to be making a half a million dollars a year. She does. They don't have to live on the pull-out couch. That was just so contrived, if you will. But you know, it's so funny because I have this sort of visceral reaction of, "Gosh, tell me a great story," because you've got everything there to do it. And to me, the disappointment was, I think every, I mean, I think the act, you know, the actors were really strong, especially as an ensemble cast. They, they help each other in, I think, in the scenes. And then you don't give me a really great big chill plot line that's complex and builds on each other. Every minute moves the story forward. The story at the beginning is the same at the, as at the end, these two people are having an affair and one of, and they, and they're trying to manage wishing they weren't. 
It's a stupid college hookup. It never ended. Why do you insist on calling it an affair? Because you guys are married to other people and having sex with each other? There's nothing that progressed inside of that entire eight series that I saw. To me, that affair, it's the driving force of the whole plot, but to me, that's what's really interesting, is that it brings up this, is this really a desirable person, or is the idea of this person Mm -hmm. what I desire, that I remember what I was like when I was 19 and what he was like when he was 19, and if he really were available, would I want him? Would I want him on a day-to-day basis? It's kind of like... She doesn't even ask that question. She does ask those questions, and she talks about it with her therapist, and it's the same way when you look back on college, do you all still have something in common, or is it the nostalgia that's trumping the current day. And to me, what was a really interesting twist in this is when you think about the TV show Friends, or you think about other TV shows where there's a tight group of people and how hard it is for an outsider to break into that clique. So the people that they dated outside the circle of Friends, for example. On the show Friends, the Friends always dominated So you never really saw it through the point of view of their potential spouses or or other significant others. And in this, you see how legitimate the points of view are of these people where they're like, wow, you guys bring each other down or you're being competitive or you're being stunted or get into this decade. So loud. Well, you know, it's funny because girls, you know, accomplishes the same thing. In a, in a different way. You know, they're, they're together because they've been together forever and they have a shared history and that's what keeps this group of friendship, friends together. And you had a visceral response to girls, not dissimilar to the response I'm having to this. I just think it's interesting. But for very different reasons. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't matter because it's the same sort of like, I don't really want any part of this kind of response. Now, I watched all eight episodes because I kept thinking well, maybe it's going to build soon, or maybe we're going to move beyond an affair that is going to get caught at some point. I mean, every you had to know that the end episode, I mean, you know, it, it didn't take a rocket scientist to note that the end episode was going, they were going to find out about the affair. I mean, but they didn't. Well, they no, they found out about one side of it. In other words, she told them she'd slept with, with the other guy. Which was a whole different couple. I see that you you have no compunction here about plot spoilers. I guess whatever. But the other thing that made me sad about it, and maybe the reason, and I'm so glad you had us do the bold type, is because the bold type. I love the elevation of friendships with each other, and in this, they I didn't think they were very good friends. I don't think friends do those things to each other, and I don't think you you know you lie about killing a rabbit and. Yeah, I mean, I just think these were not, these are not people I want to watch try to work out their issues. Whereas in the bold type, I really wanted to watch them. And I, I think maybe that's why I'm having such a strong and visceral response to it, is I don't think these were good human beings. I'm the type of person that has to have meaning in their life. Ugh. They weren't uniformly good, but nor were they uniformly evil. So to me, imagine the bold type where these 20-somethings are all in this high-pressure environment together, and they're bonding, and they get together, and they support one another, although they're especially two of them bicker quite a bit, which is interesting. But imagine if they all take separate jobs, and they get together in 20 years. That would be this show, where you think, okay, is that friendship going to last? Are they going to be competitive on a level that might not have been so obvious when they're all just trying to forge their way through their 20s? Well, the difference is these people are supportive of each other, and I don't think that's how you support your friends the way they behave. I don't want friends like them. They're asking that question, why are these people still in each other's lives? Do you want to have a child? I don't know. I can't tell if I was just putting my thumb on that scale that I was happy to see Harvard Square actually played the role of Harvard Square and they weren't using stock footage from somewhere else. Well, you know, I think there's a bigger question is why would we want to watch these people who really basically have very few ethics and few morals? Why would we want to watch them? You know, you like what's, what, what's the benefit of the gain of of watching this unfold. You know, if I'm going to watch four hours of something, I want to feel good about some aspect of it that takes me to a better place or shows me how people can change or something that says there's growth here. 
And so maybe that maybe that was it for me. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what it now, was. Now, Hollister, but, I have huh? to ask, but don't you watch Billions? Oh, yeah. And but he, aren't they, they all morally reprehensible? Well, no, no, no. They're, they're a combination of many things, but no. Would it be, if they were more re- morally reprehensible and that's all they were, then no, that would be terrible. But they're very complex characters that have both good and bad, and they struggle with both the good and the bad. And I, that struggle is something I relate to, yes. I mean, and do you think they have better ethics than friends from college? Yeah, I do. Really? Uh-huh. I do. Where's the loyalty here? I, you know, maybe I'm fighting you on this because I'm fighting you on it. There's no question. Maybe I am because I'm very defensive about the fact that you went there and it's like, you're not like those people. I mean, I don't know what it is, but you know, but there's something about it that just struck the wrong chord in me, right? Not from the get go, but certainly by the second or third episode. And yet so. I never I never loved the big chill. Did you oh you didn't and like the, the big chill? I feel like I was at my best when I was with you people. Not me. Getting away from you people is the best thing ever happened to me. I mean how much sex, fun, friendship can one man take? <laughs> A lot of people love that movie and I think all the music I remember made me love it. Yeah. is that scene where is it Glenn Close who offers up her husband? Uh-huh. To, yeah, to impregnate their friend. Yes. You know what I mean? To me, I just remember thinking that was odd. I guess, though, on the scale of charitable, you know, versus, what did you call them? Morally reprehensible? I mean, you know, it, the big chill, they really wanted the best for each other in it. And they celebrated each other's successes and they, and they lamented the failures. And so for me, watching that was a gift because... I could see the good in humankind around it. I don't know what people think about me. You don't have that problem here. You know I don't like you. (laughs) But the thing about the big chill is the music. Mm-hmm. The music was right up my alley. And maybe we should do hashtag blast from the past is the big chill this week. Are you good with that? Okay, so the list of six. I had, this is the my my favorite list of six we've ever done. What about you? And Hollister, you came up with it. So kudos to you. I thought this was a great, <laughs> it really made me think. Okay, so you want to intro? Okay, so these are our list of six people who were miscast in movies and who we think should have been cast instead. I know, it's such a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then Hollister, start us off. No, you go ahead and go first. Okay, I'm going to start with Ben Affleck in The Accountant. (gasps) Wait, I thought you (laughs) liked Ben Affleck in The Accountant. Didn't I trash him, but you didn't? No, you might have to go back and re-listen to okay, our podcast. I will, actually, yeah. I wasn't really feeling his cerebral side in that when yep. he played the accountant. Agree more. Yep. To me, he kind of just looked like a big lunk, which made more sense as he got to act two, uh-huh. but I thought he was miscast. And so I thought about who I would have rather seen in that part, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go with Tom Hiddleston. <gasps> Brilliant. Cho- Thank oh, you. Oh, my God. Uh, yes. And not to say that, you know, his formal education is the be-all and end-all, but he did go to Eton and then to Cambridge where he earned a double first yeah. in classics. Yeah. And I'm like, that is a guy who could have played both ends of that spectrum, so to speak, huh. the accountant and also the hitman. But I was just going to say, but he could play the hitman too because he did it so well. What was that show we liked? The Night the, Manager. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Yep. Oh my God, great choice. I love that Thank choice. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I'm sure Ben Affleck might disagree with you. <laughs> it's so funny. He didn't come to mind. A lot of different things came to mind, and a couple I discounted because I couldn't figure out who should have done it. So, Okay, so ready? I'm going to start with Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. <gasps> really? Oh my I just God. feel like a pillar just fell out of the Smithsonian Museum. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, look. It was Judy Garland who played the role. They didn't want her to play the role. The the girl in The Wizard of Oz is supposed to be 12 years old. You know, she just was too mature to be in that role. She was too tall. She was just, she was so miscast and they didn't want her, but she was the only one who was free to do it. And back then, the different studios owned the stars. So they had planned on using Shirley Temple and then Fox wouldn't turn her over to them to do it. I, I decided that I can take the liberty of picking somebody from now to be in it then. Is that okay with you? Oh, I like that. See, it's like going back and forth in time again. Natalie Portman. Really? Yeah. At the age of 12. Can Natalie Portman sing? Frankly, they could have dubbed her. Interesting, because all I really remember is 
well, somewhere Toto, over the rainbow. <laughs> and somewhere over the rainbow. And of course, the Wicked Witch flying through those trees on her bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what about, what's your next one? Okay, I'm going with another old movie. Not as old as The Wizard of Oz, but this one's from 1969. I'm going to pick Barbara Streisand in Hello, Dolly. Really? Mm-hmm. You know, Dolly in Hello, Dolly is supposed to be Irish, huh. but, you know, all that aside from, you yeah. know, O'Toole, I can see Barbara Streisand as a character who likes to meddle, but... She's not a light-hearted interloper. Dolly Levi, you are a damned, exasperating woman. Why, Horace Vandergelder, that is the nicest thing you have ever said to me. So who did you pick? Well, of course, the Divine Miss M. Thank goodness she's finally doing it on Broadway now and won her Was Tony. Was she even a star then? Was she a known entity? Could they have chosen her? I think they could have chosen her because oh. she can sing. I think she would have brought the right levity. And this is something I did not know about the 1969 version of Hello, Dolly. Do you know who directed it? Who? Gene Kelly. Really? I thank you for saying Wasn't that. Wasn't that I've the dancing no... guy around a pole? Is that wasn't he the first pole dancer? <laughs> <laughs> was he the first pole dancer? Tell me I'm right. Am I right? You're making me think of another scene yeah, from Friends from College Whenever on that party I, when bus. I remember when pole dancing first came out, I thought, I've seen this somewhere before. <laughs> and then I realized it was Gene Kelly and that you know, with this umbrella thing. Too funny. Uh, so what about Goldie Hawn? She can sing. Would you have let her do it? Oh, I would have let her do it. She would have been really I think really she would have had and the facial what? expressions, too. I don't know. Well, well, you saw, but you also saw the bet in, in, in Hello, I Dolly. Did, so maybe that's why it came to mind, right? You know what's funny about Goldie Hawn is even as you say that, she looks a lot like Carol Channing with those big eyes that can be filled with naivete. Why did Carol Channing do it? Wouldn't that have been a better choice? Well, she did it on Broadway. Um, okay. I lo- See, are we having fun or what? This, this is a good one, Hollister. Okay, so my next one is Clint Eastwood in the Bridges of Madison County. Oh. He had no chemistry with the great Merrill, none. You would not fall in love with him. And it was about a war bride and a photographer, and Eastwood has no soul. And he, you certainly, when you watch him on the screen, don't think that he would have the eye of a great photographer. So he had no vulnerability. And the guy, it called for somebody who was going to be heartbroken when he left and never get over it. And Clint was going to go to the next thing, whatever it was. Do you know what I mean? I just thought it was miscast. And having loved the book and so looked forward to the movie, I was devastated, you know, absolutely devastated. Now, do you think Meryl Streep was appropriately cast? I don't, but since I had so many things to choose from, I didn't want, I can't use her also, mm-hmm. because that would have been three, and then I would have been breaking my own rule. Wow, not, Hollister, yeah. But I, I thought you. they were both miscast, I did. I agree. Yeah, yeah, so, but I thought, so I picked Clint to say that. Okay, now, so who in, do you think should it, it should have been? In my mind, she was even more miscast than he was. Maybe, I, I, you know, it's hard for me to pick, and I dislike him anyway, so it sort of made me pick him. But who, I remember, do, who you do you know, it's think so funny, because this didn't come to mind when I was coming up with my own three, but I remember when it came out, I thought, oh, I would have rather seen someone like Lena O'Lean play the Meryl Streep character. Who's, wait, who's that? She's the one from The Unbearable Lightness of Being, and now oh, she does oh, yeah, comedy yeah. in yeah. Welcome to Sweden. Also, uh, I don't think Meryl pulled that, uh, I don't think she pulled that accent off well. I don't. I did not feel like she was Italian. Yeah. I didn't feel like that's how the woman would have looked. I, I just didn't, I don't know, I didn't like her dress. Yeah, I, I, I just, yeah. So so, who, so, do, so I, I picked Jeff Bridges from the Fabulous Baker oh. Boys. But he would have to be playing it like the Fabulous Baker Boys. You know, a I little bit him. aloof, but totally, you know, like on the Fabulous Baker Boys, you fell madly in love with them, even when he was mm-hmm. sort of aloof and a little bit distant. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, and not only that, interestingly enough, when I went to look up some stuff about him, he, behind the scenes of every movie he's on, he's a photographer. He takes all the pictures. Really? Yeah. And so he's it, a musician. He's I know, a and great so I don't, choice. It's funny that I picked him when, in, in essence, he also takes pictures. So I love that choice nice. about it. Yeah. Wow, so your subconscious is even huh. at work. That's a great choice. Okay, so what's your last one? Okay, it probably will not surprise you, but I'm going to go with the old standby, Kevin Costner in Robin Hood. Did you see the movie? <laughs> yes, I did. I this, you never saw it? I mean, nope. it's old. It's from the 90s. But this is something that I find interesting. It was the second biggest grossing movie oh of 1991. God. Is that true? Oh yeah. So it didn't suffer. And I went to YouTube 
Uh-huh. And I looked at the official trailer, and uh-huh. interestingly, he does not utter a word in the entire trailer. Because remember how he just could not do the British accent. I'm yeah. pretty sure he was cast because the year before Dances with Wolves came out, where he also rode a horse and had bows and arrows. So mm-hmm. they probably thought, well, you know, he could be Robin Hood. Alan Rickman, our beloved departed Alan Rickman, oh. he won a BAFTA for playing huh. the Sheriff of Nottingham. So he was already in the movie, so I didn't pick him. But I remember talking to someone British, and she said the movie did so well in England because they thought it was supposed to be a comedy. So in that spirit, because it's a famous English folktale, and because, you know, I now think of it as a comedy... You're going to think you're going to pick Colin Firth. No, I'm going to pick Bill Nye. Oh, I like that. Okay, good. Done. And your last one, Hollister? Um, my last one is The Da Vinci Code. You know, I love oh. Dan Brown's books. Mm-hmm. And I... And so... The minute Tom Hanks was cast... Now, by the way, there's a huge uproar on the internet, too. I'm not alone in this. Uh I felt like he ruined both movies. And and just because he and Ron Howard are BFF, it doesn't mean that Ron gets to do that kind of nepotism. You know, Tom bought the books. Well, you know, just because you own them, just because it's your bad ball doesn't mean you always get to be a bat. You know what I mean? So, um, so I just... And now it's funny because when... Dan Brown talked about the character, about um, Langdon. He described him as a Harrison Ford type. That's how he described him. Mm-hmm. So I guess you'd sort of pick that. But for me, um, I felt like William Hurt could have done it. Oh, interesting. What do you think about that one? I have to really think about that. I feel like he, he could be professorial, right? It, look, mm-hmm. it calls for a character actor. And, you know, you can say many things about Hanks, and he certainly has a repertoire of amazing films, but he's not a character actor, right? Mm-hmm. And I think William Hurt can cross the line between professorial, brilliant, a little bit um, vulnerable and, and naive, if you will. You know, I just think he could have done it. And they could have dyed his hair brown, and that would have made him really different. I'm still recovering from him on Goliath. Do you think he could have jumped from the rafters of some of those European art museums and not broken all his ribs? Well, I don't know, but they could have pretended and let somebody else do it. You know, I'm thinking I might have gone with someone like Liam Neeson. Huh. The other person that I considered was Jeff Daniels. How do you feel about him? Do you like him better than William Hurt? This is what he and William Hurt have together. I still think of that character from the books as being someone who's kind of a heartthrob. Oh. You know, a good-looking symbiologist. He was that professor who all the girls were looking at wishing that he wanted to sleep with them, but he doesn't know it. That's Langdon in the, in the, in the books. Okay, but don't you think that we should like change and stop being reviewers and what we should do instead is be casting directors? Because how <laughs> fun was this? Well, I got to tell you, I mean, that is 90% of a movie is good casting. It's certainly 90% I had of the directing. Best time trying to figure it out. And I, here's, I think I figured out the movies really well as to who was miscast, but I don't think I got the who it should have been. <laughs> I don't think I got an A plus in that. And you know what? I agree with Woody Allen on this. When you did your written review of Casting By... I think it should be its own category at the yeah. Oscars. Oh, I think it is the Come great yeah. unsung achievement yeah. of filmmaking. Exactly. Yeah. When you get that wrong person, which is so easy to do, it just torpedoes the whole And movie. the reason that they wouldn't is so silly, you know? Um, mm-hmm. They didn't like the word director, and you know, it's all kinds of silly, <laughs> silly reasons, but eh. Hollister, you know what? People are going to write in and say, you know what? I might recast Hollister and O'Toole, but I'd let O'Toole go first. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> And you know what? In 20 years, we still will be friends. (laughs) I promise not to lose your rabbit.